0: See how many charges they bring against you, but Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the in the insurrection there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began saying, sorry. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, and he answered them saying. But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. This is the word of the Lord as I mentioned, we're talking about this theme again today about putting Jesus on trial and in a sense, the temptation we have to judge him against the other alternatives. And so I looked again for uh, evidence of someone who's walked away from the faith, um, and it was not hard to find, even this week, someone making a public announcement uh, that they were not going to be a Christian anymore. And this time it was uh, John Steingard, who is the lead singer of the Christian band Hawk Nelson. Uh, who made an announcement this week. I, I don't know Hawk Nelson. Um, never heard of them before, I'll admit. But he went to Instagram and put out a, a series of images, his kind of manifesto on on why he is not a Christian anymore. And it, it was many of the same things that we've seen before. As other stories I've told in the last few weeks, he talked about, you know, how, why did Jesus have to die? Like, why couldn't God have forgiven Uh, us without bloodshed. That just seems so horrific. He talked about violence in the Bible. He talked about the differences seemingly between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how those things troubled him. He saw that the Bible saw a difference between genders and sexuality and that troubled him. And then he said that the Bible, he realized, was ultimately written by people that were just as flawed as he was. And so he felt like there was no hope. And there's a metaphor that he uses throughout this series of Instagram posts that he kind of ties together. And the metaphor that he uses is an unraveling sweater. He says, I didn't lose my faith overnight. It was was like a sweater unraveling. And I would pull on different strands of the sweater. And so I would pull on on the strand of Biblical inerrancy, like, can I trust the Bible? And I would just draw that string out and I would pull on what it says about maybe gender or sexuality and just, I pull those strands out and then, you know, what I was left with at the end of the day was the fact that I had no sweater left. It had been unraveled completely. He admits in the post that. He waited to give this announcement until his band isn't touring anymore. Because now, quote, he said, in a bit of honesty, which I think was great, now I have less to lose by making this announcement. This is the way that he ends what he says on this public post. He says, What matters is that I finally worked up the courage to tell my story, to share my deepest truth, And that feels like freedom, too. And then he ends with this. It's going to be 72 degrees here in San Diego today. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful day. No sweater needed. You see what he's saying there? I'm warm enough. I'm warm enough. I have what I need. I don't need Christ anymore. I'm good without it. It's just this covering that I wore for a while, and now I don't need to wear it anymore. Now, my reactions to this this week were ranged from very cynical to then very convicted. So, the cynical side of me when I first read this thought, and still think on some level, this is just so profoundly ungrateful, right? This guy grew up in a Christian family. He has loving Christian parents. His his dad was a pastor, his grandfather was a pastor. He grew up in a warm community that loved him. Then he had a career based on, you know, Christian convictions he he's saying to hundreds of thousands of people and and who adored him and who were grown in their faith by him. And then he retires from Christian music and then he says, I'm I'm good. I'm good with this. What if you weren't born into a loving family? What if you've been born on the streets? What if you didn't have a community around you? What if you didn't have people who loved you? What if you didn't have the moral framework that you grew up with? Would you still say, I don't need a sweater? Or would the world perhaps be a bit colder than you remember it being? Maybe if you didn't or couldn't possibly ever live in San Diego. Or if you didn't have a huge Instagram following. I mean, so, there's so much is built into his good life here. But then I realized that some of that cynicism, it moved to kind of the side of conviction. Because as I look at my own heart, and I know as many who have struggled with these things and other things, there, there is something about Christianity, there's something about the heart of Christ, where he's always serving those who don't understand and don't appreciate him. He's always serving those who are in fact putting him on trial. While we were yet sinners, the Bible says, "While we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly." He didn't wait for us to appreciate him before he laid down his life for us. And so what is happening here in this ungratefulness is something that happens in all of us because we tend to treat Christ sometimes like he's somebody that we can evade, or someone that we can ignore someone that we can even make fun of or walk away from, and yet what he has done for us, as shown in this passage, is amazing, beyond amazing. He is beaten, judged, mocked, reviled for the people who don't understand that he's doing those things for them, for the sake of the world. Nobody seems to get, and which is often true for us, how significant what he did for us was. There is something deep in the heart of Christianity where he is always serving those who do not appreciate him. How many of us are ungrateful? We find ourselves evading Christ, resenting him, maybe sometimes just flat out ignoring us. The one who gave everything for us we hold at arm's length. And so the goal for us today is to just come back into some gratitude. And to some submission to who He is. And so the, the two movements I want us to see in this passage are this. We need to see what He endured. And then we need to examine how we respond. See what He endured and then examine how you respond to that. Because as is typical in Mark's Gospel, there is kind of the presentation of Jesus and then there's the, what do you think? And it's written throughout this. So first, we need to see what He endured this was not some ordinary death what did he endure three brief things first this is what he endured the God who speaks is silent the God who speaks is silent verse 1 of chapter 15 as soon as it was morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council what are they consulting about they are consulting about the best possible way to present Jesus to the authority so that he will be killed. They, they do not have the authority themselves to take Jesus' life because they are under Roman rule so they are con- consulting with one another what's the best way that we could get him killed to present him to Pilate. So then they bring him to Pilate. Pilate says, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. That's the only answer he gives. And in a previous passage, when he's on trial with the Jews, he only gives one answer as well. And the only time that he answers is when the chief priest puts him under oath and makes it legally binding. And then Jesus is not going to disobey the law. He says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And then Jesus says, I am. And that's when they tear their clothes and they say, what further proof do we need? And they bring him to Pilate. Just one answer from Christ. And then Pilate asks him this, and he gives him one answer. You have said so. Less clear than the first answer he gives to the Jews. It's an enigmatic answer. So you say. It's basically what he says. So everybody is saying. What he means, of course, is this. I am the king of the Jews, but not in a sense that you would recognize. Not in the way that's going to be played out with what's about to happen. And then he is silent. Have you no answer to make, Pilate says. See how many charges are brought against you. Jesus made no further answer (coughs) so that Pilate was amazed. He's silent before his accusers. Whereas Isaiah 53 had prophesied as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As an old spiritual song says, he never said A mumbling word. He didn't speak up in his defense. And Pilate is amazed because Pilate is a judge. He's used to seeing men and women cry out for their lives and beg and flail around. And Jesus just sits there in silence and doesn't say anything in his own defense. And Jesus is silent. You need to see, he's not just a man who has a defense i.e. that he is sinless and therefore could prove that, he, that the charges that were brought against him were false. These charges of insurrection, that he's going to try to overthrow Rome. It's not just that he has a defense and chooses not to use it. That's, that's on, a, on a human level. That would be an amazing thing. But on the divine level, he is the God who speaks. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, that is Christ, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. By the word of his power, he created the whole universe. And so it is so significant and so much more significant than just a silent, accused person. He is the God who spoke everything into existence. Do you see what he endured? More than silence, it's the silence before the accusers whom he spoke out by the word of his power. He created these people who accuse him by his word. And yet, as 1 Peter 2 tells us, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but committed himself to the judge who judges justly. Do you see what he endured? The God who speaks is silent. Secondly, the judge who rules is wronged. He's already been judged by the Sanhedrin, the elders of Israel, in an illegal trial, by the way. An illegal trial. It was illegal in five ways. The, the elders of Israel were not supposed to meet at night. They did meet at night. They weren't supposed to meet during a feast. These are the biblical laws, by the way. They were not supposed to meet during the feast, but it was Passover. They weren't supposed to bribe witnesses, yet they paid witnesses to speak against Jesus. They weren't. They were supposed to wait for a full day before a death verdict was carried out so that tempers could cool and justice could prevail. So, a day was required before someone was killed for a crime. They went immediately to have him delivered to Pilate. They were only supposed to meet during the, in the temple walls. Otherwise, the verdict of death sentence was not binding. These are all Old Testament and, and uh, traditions of the elders. Now, this is the same group of people who came to Jesus over and over again with minute concerns about His Sabbath-keeping practices and those of His disciples, and just the finer points of the law. What if somebody gets married seven times? Will they be married in the resurrection? They come up with all these these things, and yet they break five laws to kill Jesus. It's unjust. And then they lead him to Pilate where more injustice, injustice is portrayed in a different way because here Pilate knows their motives, and yet he delivers him to be crucified for political expediency and to keep the peace. And so we have this attempt by him to release Jesus rather than Barabbas. We're told in verses uh, 6 through 13 about how this went about. They had this tradition of releasing a prisoner, and Pilate identified Barabbas as someone that maybe they could release as their custom. And so he thinks he has a pretty good sway of the crowd and he says, "You're not going to have me release Barabbas, are you, when there's this king of the Jews here?" But his plan backfires because the chief priests stir up the crowd and they say to release Barabbas instead, a horrible criminal. Barabbas was an insurrectionist, a murderer, we're told in this passage. And so, of course, as is this, the whole passage is just dripping with this irony, because they accuse Jesus of political insurrection, and everybody knows that it's a sham, both the people who accuse him of it and Pilate, it says in verse 10, that he perceives that they did it out of envy. He knows it's a sham. So do they, they, they invented the charge. And yet they're willing to release an actual political insurrectionist in order to kill Jesus. And everybody knows it's a sham. Pilate does. He doesn't automatically think that these these rulers who have been against Rome are suddenly now so loyal to Rome that they would find all of these insurrectionists hidden in the crowd and bring them to Pilate just for the sake of keeping the peace. No. No. It's obviously out of envy. It's obviously a ploy. But Pilate doesn't want to be bothered by the fighting, by the complexity of the situation. He is interested in Jesus, and if you read the other Gospels, you see how interested he is actually in Jesus. He's very interested in Jesus. Jesus intrigues him, his silence intrigues him. But at the end of the day, he just wants all the shouting to stop. Do you see what Jesus endured? Not just the one who speaks is silent, but the judge who rules is wronged. He is unjustly treated. The heart of Christianity is that God and Jesus Christ are always doing those things for us who don't understand them. And so we see here actually in this beautiful bit of irony from Barabbas. Barabbas actually becomes the first rebel to be ransomed by Jesus. He deserved death. He deserved the death that Jesus did. Oh, just completely parallel. He was going to be killed. And he was released for for Christ to be killed. Third, do you see what he endured? The king who reigns is mocked. Verse 16 the soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed Him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns they put it on Him and began to salute Him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking His head with a reed and spitting on Him and kneeling down in homage to Him and they mocked Him. They stripped Him of the purple cloak and put on His own clothes and led Him away to crucify Him. Some obvious imagery here. The purple cloak is the royal color put on Jesus' The crown of thorns is his his crown. The salute, "Hail, King of the Jews," is a play off of "Ave, Caesar, Hail, Caesar." They strike him with a reed, which is to be his scepter. Spit on him. Kneel before him in a charade of worship. Again, the irony: he is the king, though he's always been the king. And now He's showing us what kind of king He is. He's the suffering king. The crown of thorns are actually a picture of what kind of king He is because the, as we look at the thorns in Scripture, the thorns and thistles from the Garden of Eden, those pictures of the curse that we brought into the world, now Jesus wears them as a crown. And so He is literally crowned with the curse that we deserved. Spit upon, wearing on His face the derision that we had for Him. And as he receives blows, he is embodying our healing. Everything that was bringing him pain and shame was releasing us from the same, and to the same degree. Do you see what he endured? Silent. mocked, judged wrongly. Why is this such a big deal? <laughs> you know, I, I sometimes think this myself, and I've come across others who have struggled with the faith, and I think, why is Jesus dying such a big deal? I mean, really. It's, just, it's an event that happened so long ago. So many people died. So many people died that day that weren't even Jesus. 150,000 people die every day in our current world. What is so significant about this death? And we know that some deaths are more significant, historically speaking, than others. The the death of JFK. I remember seeing footage of, uh, of that time, not that I was alive then, but just footage later of the nation after John F. Kennedy was assassinated and they had all these shots of people in different parts of the country, and everybody's crying. And as a younger person, I thought, why are all these people crying? They don't know JFK. They never met him. But of course, his death mattered to them. Why? Because of his office, because he is a representative of our government. And more than that, Because of all the world tensions and communism and all the things that were going on, his death was significant to our nation. Can you think of any more significant deaths that have happened recently? I can think of a few. Ahmaud Arbery. George Floyd. Two people died. Of the 150,000 people who died those days that they died, Why is everybody talking about them? Why? It's because what we know to be the case, that there's injustice there. We don't know all the particulars of it. And of course, we have to be careful about becoming judge and jury based on what we see on social media. But we know that there's injustice there on some level. And that injustice provokes something inside of this country. Not a political statement I'm making. I'm saying, "Do you see how significant those deaths are? They make people riot and they make people wonder what kind of a place we live in? It's significant. So what if the death that happened on this day was the most significant death of all? What if the injustice was so great that it messed with the nature of reality? Because that is the death of Christ. You can think of no higher office than the king of all the earth. Much higher than JFK. The, whole, the judge of all the earth. The one who was completely pure. Can you imagine a more impure injustice than to kill Jesus, goodness, wholeness, righteousness himself? And what if that death was not only endured because of what happened historically, but planned for the salvation of the whole world? So that those of us who, by nature and by preference, hold him in contempt in this trial are actually the ones who were embraced by him, the ones who don't understand what he's done for us. Do you see what he endured? Now examine how you respond. There are plenty of responses in this passage from Jesus on trial. There's first of all scoffing. And we can easily do that. We can easily write off this as something insignificant, as something historically old and out of date for us, maybe even something that is limiting and, you know, just false. And there are an increasing number of people who are willing to deride Christ. I mean, their books are everywhere. Their manifestos can be found on social media. And people are often saying, I just don't need this guy. I don't need this sweater. And so the crowd here has figured out that Jesus isn't going to do for them what they thought he would do. And they turn on him, and they scoff at him. And they mock him. And of course, to those of us who do that, the the message this morning is to beware. You put on trial the judge of all the earth. The speaker who spoke first, the king who reigns, is not to be held on trial by us. There's another response, which is evading. It could be like Pilate, like the Doobie Brothers song reminds me. Jesus is just all right with me. He's fine. Jesus is interesting. Maybe he's even helpful for some folks. He's a pretty good guy. I know he's helped a lot of people. I know faith is important to a lot of people. And people say these things. But the moment that following Jesus means a challenge to my worldview or a costliness to me, that we're not willing to follow him to that place. Like Pilate. He just says, I'm out. I wash my hands of this. The moment that Jesus is costly to our reputations, to the sin patterns that we hold dear to our time, our talent, our treasure, then we walk away. And what about all those people who aren't in this passage? Maybe they didn't care enough to to join in with the chief priests and the scribes and yell at Jesus and say, crucify him. Maybe they took their children off to the side when they realized there was a big commotion going on. And they just decided not to be there. They took one... Look at the political and the religious tension, and they said, We're not going to mess with that. There are many of us who feel like there isn't a need for us to take a position on Christ, He just kind of is there. But then there's the response of the faithful, which is sharing with Christ, sharing in His suffering. And I love verse 21 of this passage. There's a one-verse hero in this text. His name is Simon Cyrene. Let me read verse 21 for us. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. See, this guy who just happened to be there a guy from North Africa, Cyrene. He's from what is present day Libya. He's just traveling, coming in from the country, and he gets roped into this whole scene, and he carries the cross of Christ. He's compelled to. He probably didn't want to. And he's literally crossing paths with Jesus probably for the first time. It just says he's coming in from out of the country. He doesn't know what's going on here. This isn't his country. He just happens to be there and he is compelled to carry the cross of Christ and we know or almost certainly we know that it changed his life forever how do we know that? well first of all we know his name we know his name why do we know his name no, the, the, the guard didn't say Simon of Cyrene take up the cross he said you take up the cross pointed to this random person. But he didn't become random. We even get his children's name, Alexander and Rufus. Why? If this is just some passerby, why would Mark include the names of his children? The obvious answer is because he became known to the early church. You know Alexander. You know Rufus, right? Their dad was the one who carried the cross of Christ. He bore it on himself and it changed his life. How did that conversation go when he got home to, to Northern Africa and he just said, I just witnessed this thing and I carried the cross of this man. And everybody was saying that he said he was the king, but he didn't say anything about himself. He just stood there and he took it. And you know, the thing is, I believe that what he said was, what they said about him was true. I believe that. And he told his children about it, and his children helped start the early church in Africa, literally redeeming the Gentiles, those who delivered him over to be crucified. This moment is a picture for us of what eventually happens, that the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death spreads to the ends of the earth so that passers-by, like us in Phoenix, Arizona, who have no right to this story by birth, can hear what He has done for us, can see what He has done for us, and we can be compelled in our hearts to take up the cross and follow Him. Do you feel compelled to share in His suffering by the Spirit's power this morning? Do you feel this need to follow Him to the cross? Because that is what is required in order to share in the sufferings of Jesus. To be identified with His sufferings and then to be identified with His life. Romans chapter 6 says, If we have died with Christ, we believe. We also will live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So, you must also consider yourselves... Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have an opportunity to share in his sufferings, to say no to sin and following a way that is different from him, and to be burdened in the same way he was over this sin, and to follow him then into life on the other side. Do you see what he has done? Now, what does it do in you? What is your response? Let's pray.